0: I'm really excited to be here. I uh, first met your pastor uh, several years ago when he was at one of the district conferences sharing about some of the stuff that's going on through Cornerstone Church in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm pretty impressed that I just got that right in front of you. But it is still so encouraging. We sat down uh, this afternoon before the service, and he was telling me some of the new developments about what's going on there and it is just amazing the way God is using this church is phenomenal and the stuff that uh, God I believe is going to continue to do not only through you but uh, through the ministries connected with you uh, it's just it's amazing I uh, just to give you a little bit of background and why that just blesses me in such a a personal and and uh, deep way is because I ministered in Staten Island New York for almost 13 years and I pastored Salem Church and Salem was a 99 year old church when I went there and it was on the north shore of Staten Island and the north shore of Staten Island is a lot like the rest of New York City it's very multicultural there are uh, people from all over the world there It's it's a great mission field I'll mention that In just a second but uh, specifically we had about 30,000 West Africans right there on the west shore about uh, excuse me the north shore of Staten Island about 5-10 minutes from where I pastored and it was really funny because one day I was studying uh, in the afternoon and this was when there was no staff is like me and a secretary and she was downstairs I was upstairs somebody knocked on the door I went to the door and there's a guy there uh, West African man who was named Moses Moses Jensen was his name, and uh, I was pretty impressed with that because our church had really deep Norwegian roots, and the name Jensen is a Norwegian name, and yet here's Moses who is very clearly African, and so I was thinking, wow, this this is pretty cool. Not only that, he's the first Moses I've ever met in my life. What made that even better was about a year later when we were out in my driveway in front of the parsonage and I'm talking with Moses and a guy named Jesus calls me on the phone. So I'm sitting here, I I told my wife later, I said, I've got Moses in front of me and Jesus on the phone. (laughs) You can't beat this day, this is pretty amazing. This only happens in New York, but um, I just fell in love with uh, so many people from the West African community and was so deeply touched and over the years we did a lot of mission work in Africa as well some of my dear friends are still doing ministry there so to see what you guys are doing in a different part of Africa I just know the profound impact that it has and the whole world I think knows how desperate uh, the Congo has been for years now so thank you for what you're doing and it's really it's really cool for me to be able to see that and for those of you that went on the bike ride how many went on the bike ride raise your hand a few of you God bless you guys that's amazing how many miles was it I saw it but it went too fast 500, 500 miles that's incredible incredible well have you recovered Absolutely. it's all down, here. It's all down here. <laughs> <laughs> now that's the kind of ride I could go on that's great. I, uh, but anyway, I, you know, just to be here and to be a part of what you're doing. But not only that, like I, I've heard about the stuff going on globally, what's going on with Africa. But seeing what's going on here with the counseling ministry next door, which is something that I have a real heart for. But, um, you know, knowing how impactful a counseling ministry is, uh, it seems like the more counseling you offer, the more you realize there is need for it. And so I'm very thankful for that. The stuff you're doing with people that are underemployed or unemployed, it's just beautiful to see that you guys are not just preaching the gospel, but you are meeting people where they are with the gospel. You're meeting them at their point of need, and that's really what the gospel ministry calls us to, and that's essentially what I want to talk to you about tonight. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to keep talking, but I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and as you're turning I just want to let you know uh, as Pastor Tim Tim said just a few minutes ago we are part of the Evangelical Free Church of America and the Evangelical Free Church of America was uh, started by a lot of Scandinavian immigrants coming from Norway, from Sweden and they would come up uh, basically through New York and many of them would just stay there in New York and then The others who came and kind of processed through New York, ultimately, it seems like most of them went west. And so over the course of time, uh, to make a a long story short, uh, they came and the Evangelical Free Church, what that means is most of these people are coming from lands, from countries where it's a state-run Lutheran church. So they have a decision to make when they get here, are they going to continue to be Lutheran, and will they be connected with the church back home? So the decision basically made, was made over the course of time to not be Lutheran, even though there was a, a Lutheran influence, but to be evangelical, which is a little, little more broad. It's evangelical, st- strictly centered on the essentials of the faith. And so that's the evangelical part. Free means it's autonomous and it doesn't cost you anything financially to get in. So there's the evangelical, there's a free part, but there's also, more seriously, a freedom from the state church back home, whether it was Norway or Sweden. So when they came here, they basically severed ties and they started their own movement here. Well, here we are today, many years later, and we're no longer a Scandinavian group. As you look around this group here tonight, you see that very clearly. And uh, I pastored a church in New York. We had every weekend, we had well over 30 nationalities there, and God has been so good to the Evangelical Free Church of America. And uh, we now have over 1,500 churches uh, across the country, and our mission statement is to multiply transformational churches among all peoples. How many of you know that America is a mission field? America is a mission field because people from all over the world come here. It's not just that we're post-Christian, but we are a landing spot for people from all over the world. And they're going to get met with something. And it's up to the church to make sure that when people land here, they're met with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is a mission field. Our specific mission field, the one that I am working with now, Uh, It's called the Eastern District. We go all the way from New York down to Virginia. We've got about 130 churches, and uh, we've got about 43 million people to reach. And if you want to know what I envision for our district, it is essentially this: Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 talks about how God has saved some people. He has changed their lives, and He has given them purpose. And their purpose is to display to a dark world both the, the world around us that live here with us and the spiritual darkness all around us, not just here on planet Earth but in the heavenlies, as the Bible puts it. We are to display light in darkness, the manifold wisdom of God. Every time we preach or we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ, Every time we do that, we're light shining in the darkness. And guess what that does? That testifies that no matter how bad it gets right now, that ultimately God will win. No matter how dark things are right now, the power of the light, the power of God's light, will one day rule and reign, and there's nothing in hell or on earth that can stop it. That's the power of the gospel. And so that's why we're here, and I'm praying we're going to do that over 43 million people. And so I hope we can do some stuff together in the days ahead. How are we going to do it? I have no idea. All I can tell you is we're going to go for it. We're going to plant churches, we're going to do ministries like you're doing here, we're going to partner with one another, and we're going to see God do some beautiful things together. So, with all that being said, I have left a pastorate in Staten Island and I have become a district superintendent. I kind of left the mafia over there where I lived in Staten, Italy. And I have come out to the Amish out in central Pennsylvania. And I'm not really with the Amish, but when I lived in New York, I always thought, man, I just want to go out to central Pennsylvania and live with the Amish because it is way too intense here. But I'm about 30 miles from the Amish, so it's not really accurate. But I do want you to know that. I believe that what I'm doing now is what God would have me to do and essentially what you need to know about me is that I love Jesus and I love people and the way that I ended up where I am as a district superintendent is because most of our churches are not experiencing the kind of life and joy and effectiveness and fruitfulness that this church is and we experienced a great revitalization in New York And that's really what our district needs. Out of 130 churches, if you all could pray for me to lead this effort, I'd really appreciate it. Out of 130 churches, over half of our churches are either in plateau or decline. And that's reflected across the country as well. Now, we need the power of the gospel to revitalize our churches. And so I want you to pray for me when you think about me, if you do. all right. If you don't, just think about the guy that was here and uh, Pastor Tim introduced him to you and who needed a lot of help. All right, when you think about me, pray for that. God give him wisdom to bring light to the darkness here on the East Coast. This past week, getting into the sermon, this past week I was at Camp Spofford up in New Hampshire. Has anybody ever been to Camp Spofford up in New Hampshire? Okay, nobody. Well, I was up up there, and I was up there with a lot of guys from New York and uh, there was a, a, a range, and by the way, if I don't sound like I'm from New York, it's because I grew up in East Tennessee. So every now and then, there might be a little bit of a New York thing, and then the rest of the time, it's pure hillbilly, all right? So it's a very confused accent, all right? And I understand that. But just so you'll know, God has kind of led us this way. So my accent's probably somewhere around Delaware, I guess, by now. Uh, but nevertheless, I was up there with the guys, and we were... Um, out there uh, on a rifle range one day. It was just a, a blast. And we came back, we had been shooting some skeet, which I had never done before. Uh, we're shooting some, uh, some different kind of rifles. And, and I come back and one of the persons there on the beach said to me, I bet you really did good, didn't you? I mean, you were a Marine. And I'm like, I, I left the Marine Corps like 24 years ago. And I haven't shot anything aside from a 22 since that time and a 22 is basically like a, an advanced BB gun. There's very little power in a 22, and I said, I, some of these weapons I have never shot before, never gone skeet shooting, and I said, not only that, but the sights on these weapons, I, you know, I had never used those kind of sights, so the truth be told, I wasn't really any better than anybody else, marine or not, I just wasn't any better. Uh, there was a misconception that I would be because I was. Now, the reality is there was one weapon, and it was called a .30-06. Some of you uh, hunters, you probably know what that is. I had never fired one of these before. Now, it's not the weapon, but there was a sight on that thing that you just couldn't miss with. There's a crosshairs there that just line that thing up and all you had to do you could have been eight years old you just pull the trigger and it's I mean it's going to kick you back about two feet but you pull that trigger and it and every time you would hear it downrange and it just pops it hits that wood and you would hear it echo off the ground all the way back and you just you couldn't miss with that thing but it wasn't because you're a great sight or a great shot it's because you have the sight set well here's what I want to say we have been praying for missionaries tonight and we have been praying for some people to be used mightily of the Lord that they would be good missionaries whether short-term or lifelong I want to tell you that every Christian is a missionary and I believe that you have it within your sights if you understand scripture to be a great missionary I think every one of us could be great at what God has called us to be it's just a matter and you understanding how to use that sight. so here's what I want to do I want to get you to look with me at Mark chapter 10 verses 42 through 44 let's read that together and I'm gonna break my message down in three ways pastor Tim asked me to share with you what I did and share with you about our mission field and in so doing I have taken up too much of my preaching time so I'm gonna preach fast so you listen fast Say amen every now and then to let me know you're there. And we're going to get through this and learn some stuff together by God's grace. But verse 42, Mark chapter 10. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Would you pray with me briefly? Father, in Jesus' name, I praise you tonight. I praise you. It is a privilege to be able to meet with some brothers and sisters, to meet new friends. It's a privilege to be here in this place to worship, to listen to you, and I pray now you would give us ears to hear what you'd have to say to us. Give us eyes of faith to see what it is you'd have us to see, and above all, give us hearts to obey it. And when it's all said and done, we'll give Jesus all the glory, and we pray this in his name. Amen. So here's how I want to break it down. Greatness encouraged, greatness encouraged, and then greatness examined, and then we're going to apply this by seeing greatness embodied. This passage of scripture shows us greatness to some degree being encouraged. Jesus calls his disciples to him. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, he, they lord it over them. They, they get their identity from it. And they're not friendly kind. They're not using it as, a, as a something to show honor to others or to bring value to others they're not doing this to give to others they're doing because of what they get from it and their great ones exercise authority over them but he says to his disciples it's not going to be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first in other words whoever's going to be great is going to be slave of all and in other words if you want to be great at being his disciple, if you want to be great at shining the light in the darkness, if you want to be great at being one of his representatives, then you've got to be a servant. You've got to have that attitude of service. He's encouraging that. Now, let's look at greatness examined. When you look at greatness examined in Mark's gospel, you see there's a contrast going on. Look with me back a little bit before this. Verse 35 of Mark chapter 10. When you look back at verse 35, I'll start reading there in just a minute, but I just want you to know, in the grand scheme of Mark's gospel, Mark's writing, and he's got two primary purposes. The theological purpose is to show people that Jesus really is the Son of God. He really is the one that they've been looking for, and to the Roman mind, to the... uh, people that most scholars and theologians think that Mark was kind of aiming his gospel to, uh, he was showing them that there is a God and this God can be known and he can be known through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so with that being said, he's been taking them on a journey all the way up through chapter 9. He's taken them from Galilee to the point where Peter comes out and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And at that moment, Jesus says for the first time, now you understand. Now I'm going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man must suffer and die. This is what Mark is doing. He's taking the reader up to that point, And then he shows there's a little journey in between Galilee where he's had them up through chapter 9. And then they're going to go on the way from Galilee to To Jerusalem and then the end of the book takes you to Jerusalem and all that happens in that Passion Week well here we are kind of in the middle in between and they're making this journey Jesus has just told them I've come to suffer and to die while they're on the way there's a rich young man that comes and who is asking Jesus what it's going to take to inherit eternal life and Jesus tells him some things and he says okay check I've got that good no problem I've obeyed all the commandments. I'm honoring God. And then Jesus says, okay, well, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And that guy says, bye-bye. That's the Eddie Cole version. He doesn't follow. But Jesus tells them in verse 31 in Mark 10, many who are first will be last. In other words, first in the eyes of culture, rich young man. Many who are first, they're going to be last. But then he goes on. And he reminds them once again, third time, verse 32, he tells them, the Son of Man has come to suffer and to die. Now watch this. This is kind of crazy. I can't even believe this when I read it. Every time I read it, I find it amazing. But... Verse 35, it says that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which, by the way, they were, some, they were one of the early ones. When Jesus was walking out there by the lake and he's bringing some disciples in, they're one of the early ones out there. James and John, they've been with him every step of the way. And they say to Jesus in verse 35, Teacher, what, will you, what we want you to do for us, whatever we ask of you. Genie in a bottle. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, I've come to suffer and to die. Three times he's told them this. And they say, we think we would do a good job reigning with you. You know, you've seen our billboards as as you were walking around down there by the Sea of Galilee. I mean, you Sons of Zebedee Fishing Company. I mean, it was down there, Fresh Fish Daily. I mean, he's the administrative guy, he's kind of the face of the crowd. You know, John, he's very verbal, he's out there, he likes everybody. He's got his Facebook page, you know, they're really doing online media. That's right, that's what they were saying. But they're basically saying, listen, we think we're qualified. We like to sit on your right hand your left hand. But Jesus says to them in verse 38, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup with which I'm about to be baptized? Are you able to go through the baptism and they say we are able look at verse 39 we are able they don't even know what they're saying in that moment and then Jesus says to them you know what you're right you're going to be baptized both of them are going to suffer. They're going to go through that same baptism of fire Jesus is going going to have to go through. But to sit at my right hand, verse 40, and my left, it's not mine to grant, but it's prepared for those for whom it's been prepared. So the others, obviously, when they hear this, they get really upset. Verse 41, when the ten hear it, they begin to get indignant at James and John. Jesus calls them to him, and this is when he says, You know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. They lord it. They use it for their own good. But he says, listen, you've been following me now. For three years it shouldn't be so among you. Whoever's going to be great among you, you've got to have the attitude of a servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be the servant of all. Now there's another contrast. Mark does this a lot in his Gospels. If, I'm not going to read it all the way through. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, all the way through 52, something amazing. There's a crowd going through Jericho. There's a guy there named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is over here, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 48, they start telling him, be quiet. But he cries out all the more, son of David. He recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. They said, take heart, get up. And he throws his cloak off, he springs up, he comes to Jesus. Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus says to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. Watch this now. When you look at the scriptures, you have John and James. John and James are saying, hey, we want to sit on your right and we want to sit on your left. And Jesus says, are you able to do what I'm calling you to do? And they say, we are able. We can do it, Jesus. We're going to be there with you. And Jesus says, hmm. Your attitude's all wrong. You get to the blind Bartimaeus, a broken, blind beggar. Over on the side, everybody's saying, pass this guy. Pass him. There's a crowd. He's got, Just be quiet, Bartimaeus. He starts crying out all the more. It's a crazy scene. But they call him, and he comes up there. And what is he, what is he saying? Have mercy on me. James and John are saying, we should sit on your right and left. Jesus says, I don't think so. Blind Bartimaeus says, Have mercy on me. Have mercy. He's saying, I don't deserve it. I'm just asking you, Would you have mercy on me? Just let me see. Would you let me recover my sight? They're asking for power. They're disciples. They've walked with Jesus for three years. And here's blind Bartimaeus, hasn't walked with Jesus a day. And he says, I just want some mercy. And then, here's the amazing thing, then Jesus gives him sight. And what does he do? It says immediately he picks up and he goes and he follows Jesus on the way. Immediately. Think about that. Think about the contrast. James and John have to be basically let down. The others are mad. Why are the others mad? You know why they're mad. Can you believe they had the audacity to ask him? You know they're saying, I wanted to be on his right hand. You know, Peter's really upset. And yet, here's this blind guy who realizes, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. You know what mercy is? Mercy is not receiving what you're due. In other words, I realize I deserve punishment, I realize I deserve something for my sin. And he didn't get, he didn't ask for a position. He asked for mercy, Jesus says, I'll stop all that I'm doing to give you mercy. For anyone who's calling out for mercy, Jesus will stop. Of all the voices around the world, six billion people in the world, to this day, whenever a voice cries out for mercy in Jesus' name, he stops and he hears that cry. And in grace, you know, mercy is not giving you what you deserve, grace is giving you what you don't. Grace says, I'll give you your sight back. And then he gets up and he follows him on the way immediately. You see, that's the idea. There's a contrast. The disciples, amazingly, aren't getting it. And here's a blind guy who does get it. Do you see that contrast? The idea there is they're looking for greatness in one way. It's a worldly way. It's a a culturally defined way. And yet Jesus is calling his disciples to another way. Let me ask you a question right now, how do you define greatness? What is greatness to you? What is greatness? You see, our, our term of greatness in the American culture, it's kind of like it was back then. I mean, it's, it's, you know, what have you accumulated? What about your houses? What about your cars? What are you driving? You know, what, there's nothing wrong with your your nice things if you've worked hard please don't don't hear me to an extreme here but we don't define our identity by what we have do you define it by your what your your what your position is by your authority like they did in the gentiles it, it is for some of you who are educated this is a very educated area is it do you find your identity by the diplomas on your wall Parents, do you find your, the identity of your children, are they va- validated by where they're going to college? Is that your identity? And l- let me ask you younger guys, are you, is your identity found in how many likes you get when you do a post on Instagram? Have you ever done a post and then you thought, I'm going to get some likes, and you don't get many, and you're like, man, I'm really disappointed. Facebook, you put a post out there and you don't get many, nobody's sharing anything, Twitter, all these things. And it, and it just messes with you. You think you just gave something good and it's not. What in the world what we accumulate has nothing to do with greatness. Our positions of authority has nothing to do with greatness. Our accomplishments as good as it as good as all of this stuff can be, that's not where greatness is established in the eyes of Jesus. In the eyes of Jesus, someone is great when they carry the mindset of serving like he did. Let me talk to you just in the last five minutes I have with you about greatness embodied. How many many of you have heard of Nancy Cole? Nancy Cole? That's, That's my mom. I could very easily understand why you have not heard of Nancy Cole. Nancy Cole, to me, is great. She's great. You know why? Because Nancy, my whole life has served in such an exemplary way. She, I mean, I I didn't know how spoiled I was growing up. I just, you know, I mean, mom is doing what moms do. You know, picking up after three boys and a man who never pick up after themselves without being told to pick up after themselves. She makes wonderful food. I mean, some of the best country food you have ever had in your life. The secret, by the way, to good country food is three sticks of butter, no matter what it is. My mom, I mean, to this day, I, I still think she's great. My mom is amazing. When I left the Marine Corps, they weren't giving me kind of the money that I thought they were going to give. And I'm going to tell you. like. I I'll tell you how spoiled I was. I went to the Marine Corps and talking about ironing, like putting creases in. I didn't even know how to iron. I'm in the Marine Corps having no idea how to iron. I'm like, I got to find a cleaning, uh, a cleaners really quickly here because I'm going to be in trouble. Now, I didn't know you just plug it in and turn the thing on, and iron. My mother spoiled us. She still spoils my bad. She just, this is my mom. I look around this room. I'm going to tell you. Men, if you would be honest, in a mother, you see a lot of examples of greatness. Serving somebody, loving people, cleaning up after them, sometimes in the worst ways, expecting nothing in return, not a thank you, nothing. I think about the times that I have served well in my life compared to moms and compared to my wife. I'm like, I may have gotten this service thing right two or three times in my life. I mean, you know, most of us, we just, most of us men, we're not wired that way. Most of us. My mom, she's great. You didn't know Nancy, though. I'm a little disappointed in you. How about Jim? You know Jim? Jim Gustafson? Jim Gustafson is my neighbor. Can't believe you don't know Jim. So Jim... Jim, I moved in, you know, I came from New York where we're witnessing to all of our neighbors. We're trying to share Christ with all of our neighbors. And I just want you to understand, I move out to where I live now, and it's a completely different experience. Because when we move in here, we're surrounded by Christians. The guy across the street from me is an associate pastor. I've got one person on the the backside of me. I live on a corner. The, The people that live on the backside of us, they have adopted three children from Guatemala. They're getting old enough to graduate and go off to college. So, that couple, you know what they're doing? They're saying, Well, our house is going to be empty before long. So, they've decided to adopt three more children from Colombia. Do you know how humbling it is to live beside people like that? Then there's my neighbor, Jim, who I was just telling you about. Jim, my neighbor, uh, he's super nice, comes and welcomes us and everything like this. Before I was able to get a lawnmower, because I lived in New York and I didn't need a lawnmower. And Jim, before I got a lawnmower, I, I look outside one day, there's a guy mowing my lawn. And Jim's out there flying around my lawn. I walk out there, I'm like, oh man, you know, New York, you're thinking, how much is he going to charge me? And I go out there, and I'm like, Jim, you don't need to do that. Well, here's the thing. Jim's like, oh, no, listen, this is, this is my joy. I've cut everybody's lawn in this neighborhood. And I'm like, no, Jim, you really, let me pay you. Let me, let me do something for you. He's like, no, this is treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. This is me laying up treasures in heaven. I'm like, okay. Well, lo and behold, I get a lawnmower, but here's the thing. Jim has cut my lawn like three or four more times since then, because he notices I'm not in town and my grass gets a little high. I don't know if it's because I'm bringing the value of the neighborhood down or if it's because he's trying to serve. I just, it makes me a little uncomfortable. I, you know, to the degree, I'm like, man, you can't keep cutting my lawn. It's like, treasure's in heaven. I'm like, wait a minute, it's becoming a competition now. I'm thinking, how in the world can I serve him? I'm a pastor. You've got some audacity trying to outserve me. You know, there's just, what are you doing, Jim? But this is the neighborhood that I live in. Jim's a great neighbor. He just found practical means. We've got another neighbor that we're going out of town, and we're like, man, we haven't thought this thing through. Our dog, we've got a dog. You don't know Buddy either, my dog, do you? catching a trend here. My dog buddy, the miniature schnauzer, needs a place to stay. He can't go with us, so you know what we have to do? We have to ask, can you keep a dog for a few days? I've got a neighbor that doesn't know me keeping a dog for a week. I'm surrounded by good neighbors. How many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? Let's take a quick turn here. Fantastic. Now we're on the same page. C.S. Lewis. You all know C.S. Lewis, Why, Lion, which wardrobe chronicles of Narnia mere Christianity C.S. Lewis famous author okay here's C.S. Lewis I think he's a wonderful author I love Tim Keller big Tim Keller fan well Tim Keller I love you know if I didn't know C.S. Lewis before Tim Keller I would love him vicariously through Tim Keller I didn't know why Tim Keller was so influenced by C.S. Lewis but listen here. listen to this why Tim Keller's wife, Kathy, when she was a little girl, wrote C.S. Lewis. He's in England, famous author, professor at Oxford. She writes C.S. Lewis, and do you know three or four times C.S. Lewis takes the time to write a 12-year-old American girl by hand back? I'm like, good night. How? In the world, this, I'm going to tell you, C.S. Lewis, he's a a great writer. He was a wealthy man, a famous man, still is to this day, bestseller while he's dead for 50-some years. But you know what makes him great to me? Because he would take the time to write a 12-year-old girl in America that he would never meet. That makes him a pretty great man in my eyes. What's greatness to you? It begins at home, like moms, dads, you can do something, we can do something, we're, I don't think we're wired like moms, but you can do something to be great at home, you can do something to be like my neighbor Jim, bake an apple pie, help with a car, do something, if you don't want to mow, I get it, do, do something, be a good neighbor, love your neighbor, Whatever it is you do at work, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it and who you do it for. C.S. Lewis, famous author, doesn't need a heart of a 12-year-old girl. She gives him nothing, and yet he would take the time to write her back. That's the heart of a servant. Every one of us can apply this to our lives. And let me close with this. Philippians chapter 2. This is somewhere I want you to turn, and I want to just tell you all of them, mom, C.S. Lewis, Jim, they're all, they're all great in my eyes to various different degrees, but i got to tell you, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, here is greatness embodied. Jesus says in verse 44, whoever is going to be first among you needs to be slave of all, but he says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man, meaning himself, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I came to suffer and die for you. This is the Lord of glory saying I came to suffer and die for you not because of what you can give me simply because this is what I come to give you. That is greatness. And here we close with this. Philippians chapter 2, are you there? If if you're not there, you don't have to turn. I just want to close as I read this. Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul writes and he says, let this mind be in you. This is greatness. It's because Jesus left his glory, gave up his comfort to serve, to suffer, and die, that the Father received his sacrifice, and he's seated at his right hand, and he will come again. But Jesus is Lord of all, and has provided us a wonderful example of what greatness is. You can be a great missionary. I can be a great missionary, even if we never leave the United States of America. This is your mission field. Aim for greatness. You have your sights set. It's in following the attitude of Christ Jesus. Serve. Serve your home. Serve your neighbor. Serve at work. Serve in Jesus' name. And you'll be great too, in somebody's eyes, and most importantly, in the eyes of the Lord. Amen.